All right, so my name is Dr. Neil Hitch, and um, I am the executive director of the Imperial Valley Desert Museum. And the Imperial Valley Desert Museum is a lot like what it sounds. It is in the Imperial Valley, and it is a desert museum. We are located here uh, just a few miles from the border of Mexico, hour and a half out of San Diego, hour to Yuma, Arizona. We are, the west, we are on the western edge of the Sonoran Desert. Sonoran Desert goes from our museum to Tucson. Uh, what we interpret is um, the desert, Southern California deserts. We interpret the Sonoran Desert. We interpret uh, 10,000 years of human adaptation to uh, arid lands. What that means is we have a Native American population that has lived in this area. Uh, they speak Hokan, the, the third oldest language base in, in the Americas. Um, oral histories uh, that they've been here forever, in fact. Um, but uh, after the uh, last ice age, adapted um, to a changing environment. Uh, with the, with, um, we are right outside of the rain shadow. We get three inches of rain a year. But all of this area, for um, the last four and a half million years uh, was in a giant lake, Lake Kauia. And today we farm in the Imperial Valley, but what we farm on is the Grand Canyon. This is the place that when the Grand Canyon got made, all of the sediments came. So we have an environment that was ocean nine million years ago, uh, became desert filled in by the Colorado River, became a giant inland lake, uh, today produces most of the winter salad bowl for the United States, um, has a border, an artificial border to the indigenous population that's there. And uh, if you see right there, we are at the apex of where Baja California is being ripped from Mexico we are at the very end of the San Andreas Fault at the San Jacinto Fault. San Jacinto Fault is the most active fault in the state of California. So, museum was under construction for 11 years. It was built, uh, college museum destroyed in 1974 by an earthquake. Organization put together to uh, rebuild a museum. Organization started fundraising in 1984, broke ground in 1996. Uh, didn't finish the building until 2008. In 2008, the college said, we, we don't want a museum. Like, we don't even have an archaeology program anymore. We certainly don't want the stuff back. Stuff had been in storage for 40 years. Um, I was hired January 2011 to create a plan to open this museum. College gave the museum to the nonprofit and stewardship of the collection to the nonprofit. Uh, my first day, February 4th, 2011, I got a key. Uh, walked in 10,000 square feet of empty building. We had a year to uh, reinventory the collection and bring the collection out of temporary storage or would lose our federal collections. Held our first public event in 2012. I say we opened in 2012, but we really um, developed, designed, funded a permanent exhibit which opened in 2015 and the museum as it exists is really from August 2015. I'm just going to share this because this is funny. This is an opinion paper that came in. Museum was under construction for so long. It was known as a museum that never opened. Uh, it was unclosed. And here, this is what the paper gave me on my, my first month in. We think it will not take much more for this project to go from being the area's ugly stepchild to officially becoming a public boondoggle. <laughs> it is a desert and museum. It's, an, in fact, an amazing landscape. We are here at the, the bottom of the Laguna Mountains um, at the beginning uh, of, of the rain shadow, stretching out into the Yuha Desert. Uh, we have 60 miles um, between here and Yuma, which is all border, borderlands, all desert borderlands. It's an amazing, amazingly beautiful place to be, to see. It has a collection of intaglias, which are desert-sized art. It is the largest collection of desert-sized art anywhere in the world outside of Nazca, Peru. 
We brought on a good staff, very small staff. We developed a very dynamic and extensive hiking program. That's my family hiking. We installed a, a dynamic, hands-on, uh, exploratory exhibit, um, exceeding the expectations of what you would expect for, for the area. Um, uh, hired a professional company out of, out of San Francisco. We've developed an in-classroom program that is uh, exceptional. Uh, again, trying to take artifacts out of the building and into classrooms. And then we began this three-year project of reinventorying the collection, bringing it out of temporary storage. Every day was like Christmas. You would open a box. The collection had been disassociated from its paper records. So every artifact had to be touched. Um, the number checked, marked, brought everything into past perfect. And we uh, finished that in the end of 2013. In 2014, began working on the paper part of that, which is bringing the archives out of storage and trying to connect the artifacts back to archives. Now, so this is what this session is about. Oh, I'm sorry. So then we did this curation project. It's, we're a small museum. So we, we 26,000 artifacts came out, all 98% all archaeology um, artifacts. Uh, about 80 linear feet of archives at this point have been brought into the museum, uh, curated and, and, and brought into long-term storage. All right. So the session, as proposed and written in the book, this was put together for the Western Museums Association in 2016. We presented this, and there were three institutions there, each of us talking about how different ways small institutions use archives. And so I presented on what I'm going to show right now, which is a program we were trying to get going and was very difficult. So we have these big ideas about our archives. And really, from my perspective, is it is what's the point? We did three years' worth of work. We have this archive. When you start looking into it, it's, it's spectacular. And no one has looked at it for 40 years. But what do you do with it? Like, how do you make that relevant to your community or to researchers? How do you even open it to researchers? And so we began looking and investigating ways that we could really just get people to use our archive. Um, and we didn't know what that meant, but we, we tried to develop some partnerships. So what you're going to see today, because in the last month, one by one, all the other institutions dropped out of this session. They, they didn't get support to come. And so um, they began sending emails back and forth. And I said, you know what, we'll just do the session, because what people are going to see is what I was going to present on an idea of a program, and then you're going to get to see the guy that came and did the program, and then you're going to get to hear from a guy that just came on two weeks ago to continue this search into the archives. So we birthed this idea in 2015, working with a local co college. It's not a community college, but it is... Um, a regional campus of San Diego State University. And this, this relationship took about three years to build, and, and one of those things is I, I began teaching adjunct, and I met the dean, and I met the department, the guy in the de runs Department of History. And we began occasionally running into each other and thinking about ideas. And he came to me this idea, and he said, look, I, I teach a 450 class. It's on research, and I want my the students here. There's not a lot of students in the history department, but to be open to, like, a um, to an original archive, like we're primary records, because we there's no archive in the county. Like there's nowhere students can go just to experience what it is to do original research. And I said, well, we, we're pulling this archive out of, you know, storage. Let's see if we can do something. So we offered it to all the students in the class. The idea was students would come out. My idea was students would come out. They would do research into the collections and what they would write is a finding aid. They would really tell us what was in the collection. And then that work that the students would do would give us something that we could begin to share with people. Out of that class, we had two students come. 
one student who said, I will come once a week. I believe he came once a week, and I'll begin looking in a collection. And we had gotten a collection. We pulled it out. You know, I had kind of flipped through the boxes. I knew there was good stuff in there, and I knew the family name. Uh, we had 215 boxes, what was called the Childers Collection. Childers was a professor at um, IVC, our local community college. Uh, he is locally infamous for finding um, uh, the skeletal, or excavating the skeletal remains that then he dated and said was super old, the oldest man to ever come into the United States kind of thing, uh, Kennewick man kind of thing, and then was debunked by lots of other people around, and it, this caused an argument in the 70s in, in academic circles in Southern California. And so he was, he was known for this. So this Edgar working. Edgar got kind of excited. Edgar was a student. I'd had him in history departments. He can write well. Uh, began doing that. But then this other thing began happening. When the community began learning that we were working in the Childers collection, people started being interested in, well, what really happened to, you know, this stuff that Childers was doing. And so Edgar began going out into public, doing uh, poster sessions, talking to uh, local community groups, and then that moving into, into giving papers um, at larger uh, regional institutions. And then he began publishing and writing articles uh, for our local newspaper on um, what we were finding in this collection. And, and this was my takeaway from this whole thing, okay? that we didn't achieve anything that we set out to achieve. We don't have a single finding aid. We, we don't really have anything that helps me know what's in the collection or that we can move on from. Um, except two months ago, uh, we received a $15,000 donation on behalf of Edgar's work from people that really wanted us to continue working with students in the museum and, and saw had seen him present papers. And this partnership with the school, now we've had to bring someone on because the success that Edgar has had promoting this collection to our small community, that that 450 class is coming back next semester with all 10 students to do research based on the model that Edgar developed. And so we, what we've done is we've brought on uh, another staff person in a temporary capacity to kind of figure out how that's going to work and figure out how we can get more access and get this stuff out so um, we can take what happened with one student, try and do that with 10 students. And this is the takeaway. My goal is to try and get this archival collection out because it had been in storage for 40 years. What happened is the public relations of just having young people in the community being excited about original research and local history just changed everything for us. So that the takeaway here is doing anything works, right? Doing anything is better than doing nothing or waiting. And now we get to hear from Edgar. Hello, my name is Edgar Bernal Sevilla, and I've already been introduced a little bit, so. It started as a busy work project. So first I'll explain why I wanted to do this. So I graduated with a history degree, and I thought I want to pad my resume a little bit before I go into grad school. That was it. So they had this collection that was brought to the museum and it hadn't been touched for 40 years. It had been sitting in Las Vegas somewhere. And there's over 2,000 lithics, which are um, stone tools, and 600 plus documents, um, including photos, including um, all kinds of papers relating notes, field notes, things like that. Um, the number's probably much higher if you include duplicates and things like that, but I didn't. Um, so 
another reason why I wanted to do this. So Neil asked, it was funny, the first day I went to volunteer at the museum, um, I was living with uh, who was my best friend in elementary school at the time. We, had a, we were renting a house together. And then he goes, oh, you're going to the Desert Museum. And I was like, yeah, this is my first day at work. And then he's like, okay, so I have like a grand uncle that was like kind of locally notorious archaeologist. And I was like, oh, what's his name? And then he was like, um, his name was Morland Childers. And then I was like, doesn't ring a bell, sorry, I don't know. So I show up and they tell me they have the children's collection that they just got it and they're looking for someone to curate it. And I was like, it's like destiny. <laughs> so <laughs> immediately I was like, put me on that. Plus I always wanted to work with, um, being a historian, I have kind of a thing where I also like to touch things. And as a historian, sometimes you don't get to do that, especially when you're just coming out of, out of the university. Um, so I just wanted to go and be touching artifacts and be holding the things that I'm writing about because I don't feel engaged if I'm just writing what someone else wrote about, what someone else wrote about, what someone else wrote about, what someone else touched. So I started working and behind me are all the original boxes um, that held all these documents. Um, all of this was boxed in the mid 80s. Um, and so here I am pulling out very dusty things. I can't count how much dust there was in those boxes. Um, and, but then slowly I started getting moved to other projects. So at first I was like, oh, okay, cool. Um, it's time like to mess with other stuff. I'm still touching things. I'm happy. Um, so here I am putting together pottery like a jigsaw puzzle, which is really, really fun. Um, and then I start getting pulled aside to do education stuff. And um, at first, I was just uh, like, let me get back to my work. <laughs> Why are you making me go out with kids? Um, it turned, that, that was actually, that's my favorite part of my job now. Um, <laughs> but at the time, um, so this is basically to show that the museum starts to have other priorities. So as a small museum, it's very, from all you with, from small museums know, it's, um, you have to have very versatile staff because you wear so many different hats. And I got brought in to do this, but then the museum has needs elsewhere. So I start getting shifted around. And so that's the beginning of when things start changing from the original course. And so in the PR campaign on this collection started intensifying. I get Imperial Valley Press papers, at first written by Neil, then later written by me. Um, I get published on a local magazine. I get a radio interview, which I did not know the camera crew was coming until 20 minutes before. And chances were that I had I was dressed like an absolute slob, <laughs> which I do like once a week, and it, it was just that, that day. So, uh, <laughs> um, so the PR started intensifying, then I started to go out doing presentations, and um, this one was at One Health Museum, the ANZA Conference, which is a bunch of historians and history buffs get together, and they want to talk about the Spanish colonization, um, ANZA's trail through um, New Spain, California. It actually went through the valley, so that's why we were able to host it. Um, I started doing presentations um, with, we, we, so shortly after all of this PR is getting out, we get a call from the Anzaborrego Desert State Park, who's like, hey, you guys have a children's collection. We have a children's collection too, and we just got it. What's in your stuff? And then we're like, well, what's in your stuff? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so it turns out that they had all of his, because uh, Childers is an interesting guy. First, he was a pot hunter, so a looter, basically. Reformed himself, realized that that was wrong, became interested in the academic aspect, then became a paleontologist. And he actually has like 
um, things named after him because he discovered all kinds of fossils in the desert. And then he became an archaeologist, a more legitimate archaeologist. Um, and so it turns out they have all his paleontological collection, which I was wondering where that was because I couldn't find it in my collection. And so then we started working together, um, both institutions, and we started presenting together where they would present the early parts of his life and I would present the later parts of his life. Um, so also Anza Borrego State Park is a very big institution compared to us. So it's been a really wonderful partnership and there's gonna be a lot more good things coming from that. And that was not made possible, but it was definitely a catalyst that this Childers Childers connection was made from all the PR stuff. Then, um, so then I have to start talking about it in a little bit more formal events. So this is, um, we had a wine tasting event where I just basically drank wine and went around talking about the collection. Um, I was, you know, just having a good time. And then later they tell me that I got a $15,000 contribution because of that. So, <laughs> um, Definitely nothing to whine about, right? And um, so the museum, those are all the things that kind of the museum got from my work, even though it really, it isn't finished yet. Um, and I don't really have plans to finish it anytime soon. Um, <laughs> but what, what, what did I get out of it? It's a, uh, so, and not only what did I get out of it, but what did the institution get out of it in a, less concrete way. So because of all this reading about children's archeological research, I said, I wanna go out and look at these sites. Um, I wanna go out and he's writing geological papers too. I wanna go check out these geological formations. So I'm going out into the desert and I start to get a real passion. I mean, this is where I grew up, born and raised, but I never really like cared about the desert. So reading about all this stuff, I start getting a real passion and so I'm, always out in the desert as long as it's um, 100, less than 105 degrees. Um, and so I also start getting into desert plants while I'm out there. So I start doing a lot of plant work actually and harvesting and um, so my hikes too is people see someone get excited about this stuff then my friends are like, hey, those hikes look cool. We see all those pictures you're putting on social media. Um, I want to go too, so I take my friends, I take my family, they take their friends, they take their family, and all of a sudden you have a much more engaged community that is um, much more likely to support things to protect the desert. And so I've already seen that ripple effect expanding. Um, uh, I've already seen a friend of a friend take a friend that was connected to me, like because of the connections that I made, taking people out into the desert. Um, so also, I realized I just like the outdoors in general. <laughs> so even when I'm not in the desert, now I'm um, kayaking or posing on a waterfall or whatever <laughs> in upstate New York. Um, so also reading about all these, um, all of these, so a lot of the controversy with the skeleton that was dated had to do with stone tools as well. So then I start getting into stone tools and here I am flint napping at the museum. Um, so it's, what the museum didn't get was a finished children's collection. I went through almost every single document, uh, document and the finding aid that Neil wants exists. I just haven't turned it in yet. <laughs> um, there's about three or four more documents that I have to go through that I've just never gotten around to from all my other work at the museum uh, before I have a completely finished archives. However, that does not include anything that's not paper. So anything that's not paper, I have not gotten to and I probably won't, <laughs> ever. Um, I'm too busy doing other things in the museum. And so what the museum got was, and not to toot my own horn, but an infectiously passionate educator and engaging storyteller. Um, <laughs> so the museum also got an extension of its social reach. It was reaching, due to this project, it was reaching people it would not have reached before. Um, like my friends, for example, like people my age, 
in my area aren't really that interested or weren't really that interested in hiking before. So um, while I'm not the only person, like this is a growing trend around the United States, them seeing me and them seeing the people I take out has made it so that more young people are engaged with the desert. And desert engagement is extremely critical to us as an institution and critical to the survival of the desert as just a place you can go that's not being um, abused. So we also got new partnerships with useful institutions like Anza Borrego State Park. Um, most of the children's documents were curated. So that's mostly done. And I've actually had several times where someone calls me and asks me for something. And I can flip it out from the children's collection and be like, this is the, the document you want. So the archives is already in use. It's, uh, I mean, that happens like once every two months. But the archives is open. And it's in use. And um, we got money, which is probably the best thing for a small institution is you get money. Because, I mean, all of these things really only matter if your institution can somewhat profit out of it in order to continue um, reaching out to more people and protecting more sites. And so I think one of those lists is a little bit longer than the other one. <laughs> and that's my presentation. We didn't go over um, what each of us were going to talk about before this, so that's the first time I'd seen uh, Edgar present. Um, some of that stuff that you see, what he's talking about is he, he came on as a student. We hired him as an, a, a research associate to continue looking at that Childers collection. Uh, we'd gotten a small grant to look at the Childers collection, so uh, he worked off of that. But, at that time, he integrated himself in, into the culture of our museum and became a staff person, like somebody that you could count on to do things. And so, like everyone does, it, it, we're a small institution and everybody works field trips. So um, Edgar began kind of doing that. But then with the hiking thing, he's got exceptional at taking kids. We do a, a small hike around the museum, um, but getting kids outside and showing them um, in plants and, and their uh, use, plant use by indigenous people. So um, I think part of this, you know, coming into the history, seeing something firsthand, getting excited about it, and then beginning to tell others about it um, was significant to me. So as we've continued these conversations with um, San Diego State University and the university being very aware of how um, visible Edgar has been in the community, one of their new history students, that we began talking about what's next. And so um, sometime this summer, we put out uh, um, kind of a, a, a job description, kind of. Um, got some interest from, from, from people. And then Dr. David Breckner called me to say, I'd like to come. I'm, I saw something you had posted at AAM. I'd, I'm interested in coming. He's working, finishing a PhD um, overseas, uh, coming back, and was kind of between some things, was very interested in some of the stuff he had read online about what we were doing as a museum, and um, has come in the last two weeks to begin a program now where we figure what next? What are we doing with this collection next? How do we get the collection in front of people? How do we begin organizing things so the next time we have this History 450 class come to the museum, there's kind of more focus rather than just walking into a room and, and showing a kid 215 boxes no, no one's ever looked in before. Like, how do you make that program um, institutional? And. Uh, Dr. Breckner has been through the collection now, some, some of our things for a couple of weeks, and is gonna present kind of an ideas of where he sees this going over the next nine months. All right, excellent. Well, as Neil said, I'm fairly new to the museum here, but uh, it's been a great 
welcoming experience so far. And the first two weeks have very much been an eye-opening experience, just coming to learn the collections and figure out the direction they should be going. Uh, my background is actually in archaeology and material culture. So as Edgar said, I, uh, much like Edgar, I have an obsession with getting my hands into the collections there and actually just experiencing the materials and coming to understand the personal relationship that you can have with them, connecting to the past. And that's the approach I like to apply and uh, am seeking to apply with these collections moving forward in a public forum. Uh, speaking today, I'm going to be talking about the public use, bringing the back room to the front room, essentially. Now, <laughs> there are three, pro and three goals I have uh, moving forward here. First and foremost, it is to assess and attend to the collections. Uh, my role is going to be, my official title, I think, is curator of collections. So the curation and just care for these on a day-to-day -day basis is absolutely a must. But moving beyond that, it's what do we do with these? What is the purpose of keeping these collections? Why are we as an institution holding on to them? Uh, so beyond that, and these are just a few of them right there, actually. Uh, beyond that, it's actually going to be to just get the materials out. Now, we have a variety of materials. Uh, some of them have been attested to already. We have lithics, ceramics, photographs and uh, paper records. Uh, we have recordings of oral histories and videos. Uh, we also have fossils and uh, reference collections for the local geology, because we're not just about the people in the environment, but the environment itself. And coming to figure out how to present all these in a coherent message and one that's dynamic and engaging to the public is certainly a challenge. But the first step, just getting them out there. This is stuff that has not been seen before. It's always been kept in the back. So anything you bring forward is going to be new and exciting and dynamic. That's one of the display cases. And then finally, in that fulfillment, in moving it outside the collections, diversify, innovate, and review. And it's a continual process. When you get to the end of it, you start right back over. And hopefully today I'll be discussing a few of the techniques, some of the ideas we have going forward that are going to be doing this, pushing it beyond just simple display. And with review, the big question here, the big to uh, talking point is not just if it's not working, change it up. But if it's not working, figure out why it is not working. Why is it not, why isn't our uh, a display and exhibits and artifact not resonating with the public? Uh, what can that tell us about emerging trends, the underlying reasons and motivations? It's not just how do I fix this, but how do I see this as a trend moving forward? So it's continually self-reflecting as well. And this is one of the future project goals, which we'll be discussing. <laughs> All right, so now attest, uh, uh, attending and assessing the collection. Day to day, of course, it's collections resource management, uh, environmental monitoring, pest control, uh, and of course, just caring for the collections, making sure they're as they are. But beyond that, it's also looking at them and getting them ready for uh, consumption. And that's part of what I've been doing here. Bring these collections forward. I've come to see that some of them have not really been touched or studied or just kept in storage since they were first brought over uh, during one of these earlier efforts when we first opened the museum. So there are a number, even though we did assess and associate, there are still several paper records that have not been associated with one another. So in addition to just pulling the collections, it's a bit of re-recording, uh, taking accurate photographs uh, for some of the digital uh, past perfect database, uh, getting accurate measurements, ensuring consistency across different entries, uh, months old color charts for fabrics, and actually using that to drive new research uh, to determine what sort of fabric, what qualifies a fabric from the region here, which is a research question that has not yet been addressed. So as we pull these collections, new, uh, pull these collections, new questions, new ideas arise for future research and current research. And these are all things that can be presented and used to engage the community, showing the locality of what we have. And <laughs> beyond that, it's just getting the collections out there. Uh, among the other things we have, we have a variety of comparative materials, which don't exactly fit within the purview of what we would typically have on permanent display. And these are just three objects that were pulled uh, this past week and are going into our next exhibit next week. Uh, in time, with respect to these collections, to getting them out there, we have this lofty goal at the moment of one new exhibit a week. And 
it doesn't have to be perfect, but it does need to get out there. You're presenting new ideas, new materials, things that people have not seen before. And by doing this, you're going to draw people in. And it, even if it's not perfect by your standard, it is still something that has not been seen. You are contributing new information. And by pulling these out, they're also getting a review by museum standards. This is when uh, they are being assessed and reprovenanced in some cases. Uh, several of these had not been properly, had not been previously attributed to outside cultures, or had not, had been recognized as being outside our uh, region, but not identified to where. And by studying these, by recognizing this is just something cool, I think people might I might interact with it. That gave us the excuse to start really reviewing these collections uh, on a case-by-case -case basis, thematically. So getting them out. Uh, there are a number of different ways we're thinking about doing this. Uh, the first one is what I'm calling the project box. We have a display case here, which is going to be the main focus for several of these revolving exhibits, these weekly exhibits. And some people will just see the display option there. And that's absolutely perfectly fine. We are going to be putting artifacts in there. For the first week, uh, next week, we're going to be putting six artif artifacts as part of a non-local indigenous uh, culture exhibit, so displaying all these comparative materials. But there's a lot of space. Half that space is the display. The other half is the box itself. So the box is part of the exhibit. And we're planning to fully utilize every aspect of this to make it a more dynamic thing. Rather than just presenting, we're going to be engaging. So we're, uh, we have several, uh, over the course of the research and analysis and preparation of these collection materials, we're going to be uh, presenting some of that alongside the artifacts inside the display case, but other information which you won't see in the display will appear on the display, on the box. So it's going to be, the whole uh, location will be used as a way of presenting this information, and it will only be accessible if you engage with it in, on every level. And hopefully this will create a more dynamic experience. Uh, we have several different ways to do this. Uh, we're going to have signage, including flip tops, and actually even some games here, some trivia, some FAQ, uh, new information. So this is a project that we're currently working on, even actually while we're here at conference. Uh, we are making silhouettes of several of the objects, and then there's a trivia factoid that's going to appear on the side of the box, uh, and you're magnetically going to try to attribute which pot goes with which one. And then there will actually be a flip thing that actually reveals the correct answer afterwards. So hope, and this is going to be positioned, just looking at the height of the box here, about child height, which is a great way to get younger audiences engaged here as well. In addition, we're also going to be using the space to indicate provenance, have a, a full-scale map showing the variety of locations these are coming from. Another side will include a can you spot which ones are historic, which ones are modern reproductions? And then that will engage, hopefully, with and inspire conversations about how do you tell? What's the difference? What's the effect? Uh, does it matter? And these are all things that we can then test out with the audience and, see, and with our visitors, our guests, and see what's resonating, what works, and what could be used for future exploration, uh, future development. And speaking of future development, diversify, innovate, review. Keep it changing. It's not just the box, and we're certainly thinking outside the box. We're going to think outside it, and we're going to move away from it. Uh, we have alternate exhibit types that we're definitely looking at at the moment, uh, and which are, will be better suited to different varieties of materials. Uh, my background is material artifacts, material culture, so I just showed you a few bits of pottery. But we also have paper records. We have geoglyphs, which uh, Edgar spoke about there briefly, as same with Neil which are these Nazca line uh, ground-based artworks. And you can't exactly bring that into a museum uh, in any uh, direct way, but we can certainly show our archives, our, our records of these. So one thing that we're looking at at the moment is actually a touchscreen interface. Uh, and if anybody's been upstairs, there are certainly a number of varieties for them. But as a small museum, we do operate on a uh, limited technological bu and technology budget, so we're certainly looking at new ways to innovate this on a local level, just something we could do in-house. And there are a number of solutions, but just in case anybody's wondering what a tabletop touchscreen is and some of its benefits, first and foremost.
And the benefit to this sort of engagement is it allows the user, the visitor, to actually drive their own method of, uh, and their own way of interacting and choosing, self-selecting, how they're going to go through the exhibit. So we're looking at developing something similar to this that we can use in-house, but on a slightly cheaper solution. And with that, there are several solutions. The, mo on the one that we are currently experimenting with, and uh, this is one of our longer-term exhibition projects, is using simple projectors, desktop PCs, and uh, even just a second-hand, found from a uh, rubbish bin, Connect from an Xbox. And together, those three things will actually allow you to create your own touchscreen uh, tabletop. So we have the uh, box right here. If we even just remove the top section to it, we can then use this as a platform. And it, we are in-house writing our own code, uh, developing a public interfaced uh, localized inner site, which will then document and can be readily adjusted and modified to present any of our information. Any of our storage collections can be consumed by the public and in response to how they're using it and what sections of it are being more, pop uh, more populated, we can adjust this and modify it in response to that. So we are certainly experimenting a few things here. This is the very quick beta that we've come up with so far, which is certainly still in need of adjustments. Uh, so we have two main sections currently ready. First one adds a, offers a video complement option. That's a, our archivist right there and fully functioning right now. You can click on that, get an audio. Audio is going to be worked on though. We do recognize that. <laughs> But more importantly, we allow people to process and uh, view the information as they see fit. So right now we have two uh, locations that, were on that have been scanned and presented into this. So you can actually have an interactive map, zonal control, show where the artifacts are from one bit. And then it'll actually, this should actually be scrolling back and forth, but will actually allow you to see the locality of the uh, spot right here. And that's one of the things we're experimenting with at the moment. So at the end of the day, it comes down to understanding your collections. Uh, when you do so, you can thematically sort them. You can come up with new ideas, and as you do, new questions, uh, which then leave opt opportunities for future research. And those exhibits will then drive your getting them out. Your own interests will be the starting point, but then how, the how your guests, how your visitors respond to them, use that, be aware of it, and keep an open eye for it. And then use that to diversify, innovate, review, and then repeat. And the big takeaway is it's better to get the archives, your collections, out to the public through a system that works rather than to theorize a perfect one. Don't be afraid to push for a one-week project, one-week exhibit, and if you, at the end of the week, you have something that's good, that's new, that hasn't been seen before, that's gonna inspire something next. That's gonna be the first step of many, but it's the first step. Uh, you know, don't be paralyzed by the fear of getting the, of what the collections are to stop them from actually being useful. And that's all I have there for you, Neil. So, in David's presentation, you're, mi you're missing this one big slide, um, which is, so when David came two weeks ago, we've, again, we have this idea, we fundraised and designed a professional exhibit, and we have a million two, we've spent a million two uh, on an exhibit that's amazing. But it's really archeology span based. And we did that when we brought the lithics into the building. And now that we're beginning to bring the archives into the building, we're trying to figure out what happens now. I mean, so what we're doing is we got two old cases from another museum, we're repurposing them, and what I've said is, Stuff's coming into the building as it gets curated, or is it, I want it out. I want people to see it. I want there to be con constantly turning over things. So this community sees that we are bringing this archive in and that there's going to be a purpose to it. And so when David came two weeks ago, um, we also um, brought in a, a visiting archivist for four weeks, and we are um, digitizing 5,000 aerial photographs in, in an archives collection that we have of these desert geoglyphs. This is the Harry Casey collection. Harry Casey has been 
is a farmer, but was a pilot and has been shooting um, pictures of the geoglyphs, over 300 of them um, since the 1960s. So he's got documentation of, of every few years of these sites. It's an amazing collection that exists nowhere else. And so this, again, is a project of just saying, how do you begin to get that out? And we, for two years, have, I've tried to fund a um, tabletop, $15,000, uh, looking for various grants, and then we'd have to load it. And Dave, David looked at this and said, I think there's a program we can get on the internet that we can do this. And so what we're experimenting with now is just putting that stuff on the wall. We're going to digitize this stuff. We're going to make our own. Um, well, we're, gonna, we're playing with this to see if it works. Make our own touch screen and let people look at these digitized images. Um, and we're going to do them big enough that you're not looking at that small print that we have, or in case some of them slides. And you can scroll through as many as you want. And again, this is just an attempt to get these archives out of their boxes and, and just so people can see them, someone can see them. Well, that is what we have today. Um, we still have several minutes. Um, and what we thought we would do, because, again, we weren't sure who would come, uh, we're interested in hearing um, from other small, well, any, but, but institutions of what you're thinking about, like what is possible, like what are the problems associated with these. I have a soapbox, and my soapbox is if your collections are in storage and no one sees them, you need to start questioning why you're a museum. That there is, I just, there is not enough money to store everything. And uh, what we're, again, what we're working on is just trying to be relevant, not just relevant. Um, I came to an institution that when the institution failed, they boxed everything up, and it's been in temporary adverse storage for 40 years. How do you work in your community to ensure that that never happens again? That, that, was, that was kind of the, uh, the message that I came here with. And to me, that is you got to, people got to see it. That you got to figure out how you can get it in front of people. All right. Questions or? Does somebody want to talk? We have a question? Yeah, I've got a question. Uh, I was in the Marine Corps School out of Denmark for several years. <laughs> yes. So the question is, um, Yuma Proving Grounds is a very large marine base, correct? It's marine. Yuma Proving Grounds is Army. Marine it, base is the airfield. All right. And so um, there are, we have a long history of military uh, working in the community, being in the desert. And in fact, Patton's Army trained in the Imperial Valley in our deserts before they went to um, North Africa. And so you can go to some of these sites. There are sites that you can go to, the tank track sites, where uh, tanks ran across the desert for 100 miles. And everywhere they left tracks, those tracks are going to be there forever. Because it's the same process that was used um, in creating the geoglyphs. So we have a museum called the Pioneer Museum in our community that is, is the Imperial County Historical Society. And they hold lots of collections of um, things like that. And that when we started and started working with funders in the community, we made the, a very specific choice to focus on prehistory uh, and not try and reproduce their collections or try and reproduce what they had or kind of get in their way. And when I came, you know, I, and, the, and these are farmers. And, um, you know, a guy was at a meeting. A guy got me in a corner and, you know, said, don't go after my money. So that, that, that was also my, my first introduction. So I, guess part, I guess part of the point is, though, is that some of all the, the, the patent training areas and all of that, that, somebody is keeping track of that. Because we used to find it fascinating flying over it because there were gun emplacements. Uh, there were garrisons, there were baseball fields and bivouac sites that we'd see all over the area. So our mission 
is to celebrate, interpret, and preserve desert areas. And we are halfway through even knowing what we have. So I'm going to answer that by saying I have no idea if that's in the collection. I'm going to tell you no, okay. and next week we may pull out all these maps out of storage and say, oh, we have it all. Another question or comment or story about your institution? Are you guys doing anything on your website um, that'll make this more accessible, the collections? Um, I know there's programs out there that make that easy. Are we doing on our website? So uh, we are a small museum. I go through these parameters too. Um, we have about 12,000 visitors a year. Uh, most of that comes between a very specific season in the desert. We do about 4,000 students through our field trip programs every year. We have 127,000 visits to the website in 2015. We have a social media reach of 350,000. So our online presence and our social media is gone nuts. Um, at the same time, we are trying to make decisions about what we host as far as exhibits and things online versus what we do in the museum. And I've not made that decision yet to the chagrin of a couple of staff we've had come on and one of my trustees. But um, we are just now to the point of trying to figure out how to expose stuff in the building. And we're not quite sure of um, many of the, some of the issues we would have in the collections. So a lot of our collections are disassociated from the paper records and we're not quite sure if we have copyright to everything. We're not, you know, there's some, there's some issues about loan parameters. We don't have the loan. We, like, we think someday we'll open a box and there'll be loan documents in there. So um, we're still kind of waiting on that. Yeah. Use the mic. Um, just in response as well, uh, regarding that interest site that we're building, that is all coded in HTML, even though I'm in the process of learning HTML while doing so. <laughs> <laughs> um, the benefit, though, is in theory, this, and this uh, method, this mode was selected because it is quite applicable. It's uh, versatile. We could actually use it and modify it as needed to respond to certain needs in the future. So even if we don't have any plans for anything, any firm ideas yet, uh, the one thing you can certainly do is when making any sort of related uh, ideas regarding inventories or structures or presentations, think about how you might be able to apply it in the future and make those decisions that hopefully will find future applicabilities as well. I can talk really loud. We're, we're being recorded. Oh, we're being recorded. Mm -hmm. Okay, sure. There you are. Thank you. So it sounds like with Edgar, you struck intern gold. Congratulations. They are rare gems. Um, so it sounds like you've started a second year of having students from the university come out and work at your site in your archives and other needs. Have you developed a, a template or a, a formula for getting these kids, uh, these students or young adults, um, set up and read into your organization so they can be successful quickly? I know with any intern or volunteer, a lot of the work on the institution side is getting them trained to be successful, both from your perspective as the site, but also their needs as whatever they're interning or volunteering to do. So if you could speak a little bit about maybe that process you might still be developing, I'd be really interested to hear more about that. So um, we, like most of you, we're a small museum and we make up most of what we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, so. In, I, you know, we don't have these conversations with the school, so it's my assumption of living in the community and, and seeing what's happened in this experience. I think it's pretty clear Edgar got a lot of FaceTime on a lot of places that the college wishes its students were getting FaceTime. And so I think, like, had nothing come of that, the program probably would have just been, eh, we tried to do that program, we had one student come. But now the, the professor is really interested in trying to develop this because he saw what it did for his program, for his class. So um, Dr. Bregner's been here two weeks. Uh, he, um, 
applied to a position that we had out, which is a very temporary, uh, very low funded position to try and create that, to, to see, we just, I wanted someone to come and think about what does that mean? We have 10 students come and we see what happened with Edgar. Can that be reproduced? If it can be reproduced, can it be reproduced one time or 10 times? So we're beginning to look at that and I kind of don't know what that looks like. Um, one of the things that we're talking about is this, the concept of these finding aids type of thing is that if we can put similar collections together and create our own research agenda or kind of a research topic that somebody could come and we say, all right, here's two boxes of fishbone studies. Um, we know that we have these two types of uh, fish that come out of the Colorado River and they adapt to live in the freshwater lake and which one is more prevalent? Like go through the studies and figure that out. Look at the people that have written these things. Look at the kind of the history of the area. That's one option. Um, and that's what, I mean, in my mind, I'm thinking that might be the thing. When, when kids come, kind of their boxes are laid out, they got a research agenda, and they start looking at original documents to answer a question. Um, they're, it's a 16-week class. They come to the building 12 times once a week. So it's not like they can do unlimited research. In Edgar's case, as we got to the end of the class, what was coming out of the boxes was really intriguing and his interest and passion kind of drove that project to move from from the class into a, a, a part-time job as a research associate whether that's reproducible I don't know so one of the a question that I have has to do with how you negotiated um, or, or interacted with your board? Because I think very often boards are focused on output, that finding aid, that physical object. It sounds like what you took away from this project was a much less measurable, it was much less measurable. You had, you had changes in behavior, you had impact. So, and, and I don't know if this happened to you, but if a board were to say, we wanted a finding aid, there is no finding aid. But so how do you work with your board and say, but there is this other thing that is much harder to measure, but perhaps in the end is more important in a lot of ways than that finding aid. So how did, how did if you had that conversation, how did that conversation work? And if you didn't, how would you have had that yeah. conversation? So. I've done presentations on working with a board before, and I have a background in doing that, and I have very subversive ideas about how you manipulate people on your board to get what you want. Um, great, this is also being recorded. <laughs> but in this case, what the board wanted was the lithics brought in and the exhibit um, completed, and the exhibit was on uh, Native American adaptation to the desert environment. And the exhibit is fantastic. And our connection with Native American peoples um, and, and their involvement in, in the exhibit was dramatic for the institution. Um, that was something that had to be healed because the archaeology program at the college had been very negative, or there, there were a lot of hard feelings between our Native American tribal populations and, and this 30-year archaeology program at the college, but a lot of got a lot of that got healed with specific. Um, what we've re we wrote the exhibit with. Uh, it was one of the four main objectives with the voice of Native Americans, past and present, clearly in the exhibit. And so that was the work that got accomplished. It way exceeded expectations. And now that the archives are coming in. There's no pushback or anything. We're kind of whatever you want to do. Like, and there's not even a whatever you want to do. Like that, this is all candy. Like, this wasn't kind of expected. Harry Casey collection wasn't expected that we were going to get that. The Childers collection wasn't expected when that came. So we're we're now thinking about new possibilities. But be, and because of the success of the exhibit and everything that's happened, that we have full full. Um, I would never, we don't have a board member that says anything that 
Like it, 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 everyone is fully on board with. And again, we have a small community. Everyone sees that Edgar and, and this PR com campaign was nothing but good. And that to see a young person talk about history and your local history is crazy for people, right? So, I mean, that, that's just, like, there's not anyone in the community that would say that's a bad idea and that we shouldn't be trying to pursue this guns blazing, so. Hi, um, so it, you mentioned that you decided to bring on an archivist, a trained archivist, for a four-week time period. Um, what is the, like, what are their like goals for that? why and how and how does Well, no, that I work? mean, like, I know why, because they're good at, <laughs> we're good at archives. Um, <laughs> but what are the goals of that, like, brief consulting? Will you have, yeah. I, I'm sort of wondering about that question, about being able to have a plan it seems like this is a good way to go about it. So one of the things that um, I feel as an institution, we, are, um, we always try and take advantage of opportunities and align things that seem uh, with synergies, that, that um, we try and find things that wouldn't necessarily go together and align them to benefit what our, what our objective is. So our objective is to get this collection out of storage you know, get it um, curated or in, in protected material and, and get it into storage where it's accessible. That's the goal. Um, but who funds that, right? Like I said, we had a lot of funds to do the exhibit and to bring the collection in. We have zero now. Like we did all of that and now we're still bringing archives in and that's all on us trying to make it up how it's gonna work. And so we had uh, Ann Morgan, who you saw the picture of, she was on here. Um, was a visiting curator when we did that triage of the collection. So she was on a nine-month contract um, on a grant we had received um, when we were bringing all the lithic collections in and doing that. And um, what she did is in, in the meantime, she made a good collect connection with Harry Casey and um, edited Harry Casey's book and has got a publishing contract to publish the, this life's work of, of Harry Casey. And so what she did is it, it served her to come back at this period and um, scan that collection so that she can, Harry and her can publish this book. And so what we did is took advantage of knowing she was coming, kind of put her off for about six months trying to get someone here, which wound up being David, so that there would be this connection between these projects and, and, and so that that work, that I think you know could call her a visiting researcher, um, but we could really bring that in as something more in the archives. I think we're out of time. Is that about what we we're doing, or do we go to three fifteen? Oh well, my God. Yeah. So we do have other questions. I mean, you can also we can just end, and you you know I can come up and talk to us if you want. Um, I don't want to keep everyone. This is a hard room to be in because, like, you get up and leave. It, it's like you're getting up and leaving in front of everyone. But we're, we certainly don't mean to keep you here. But are there other questions or, again, comments or things that somebody is doing at their own institution that may be aligned with kind of these ideas? or No. I will tell you this. This is what's unusual. Um, We've had a lot of success at bringing people in, a lot of success at working with young people because we are in a really unusual location. And it, it's, it's an attractive place. Um, we are the second hottest place to live in the United States. We 127 degrees um, outside in Ocotillo in, in August. Uh, we've been running about 114 last week when we came. Um, at the same time, we have some of the most amazing landscapes ever, and our hiking destinations on the federal land we have are just exquisite. So um, we've been able to attract people to come do work, but it's a, it's a really fun place to come do work. And, and so we, I don't know, it's like a big party. <laughs> <laughs> and Neely has nothing to do with it. <laughs> 
All right, thank you very much for coming. We're, we're going to be here, and so if you want to come say something specific or ask a question, we're happy to do that.